welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Brutes. Preachers. Preachers. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. It, it, it. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared. Of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. Thank you, Bruce. Ah, Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am absolutely wonderful here in my little shack in the woods. How's everything on the uh, mansion on the mountain? Oh my gosh. Will you stop? Man, I'm excited what? to be uh, talking hey, about the did show. You, hey, did you see, just real quick, did you see the Twitter picture of your servants' quarters uh, online this week? Why are you doing this? I'm just asking a question. Somebody was able to get that. I don't have servants quarters. I don't have a mansion. This is all you've made it out to where our listeners now think I have a fleet of Rolls Royces. It's, it's all. They didn't put the red one in the picture. They only had four of them. I've never even owned a red car. This is all make believe. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, here's what I know. We, uh, we dropped wrestling classic earlier this week, something totally different, a, uh, a fun look at just, uh, a weird time in the WWF, knowing what we know about all the production quirks that Vince McMahon may or may not have. Woo. What an interesting show that was to watch. If you haven't already go find it in the archives. Of course, we didn't get to drop it last Friday. We dropped it as a surprise earlier this week, but we are back on track today, man. Survivor series, 1999. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. We should mention that, uh, yesterday was the 20 year anniversary. And I saw, uh, lots of, uh, talk online about it being the 20 year anniversary because of a very memorable angle that happened at this show. And, uh, if you saw that, you know what we're going to be talking about today, but I'm looking forward to this one, man, before we get started, uh, I guess we should mention going to be another, uh, Friday night Smackdown tonight on Fox. Am I right? Absolutely coming to you live and in living color from Philadelphia, the city of brother love. Oh, really? Yeah. It's not the city of brotherly love. It's the city of brother love. Nah, I'm pretty sure it's the city of brother love. That's what I said. I was just clarifying, but you're sure it's brother love and not brotherly love. I'm pretty sure it's brother love. Well, if, if that's true, why were you never doing any, any angles in ECW back in the day? What if when the lights went out and they came back on, instead of it being Jim Cornette or Jerry Lawler, it was brother love that would have got some heat. Wouldn't it? How do you know that wasn't pitched? Well, I'm asking, this is what we do here on the show. Oh, um, nobody ever asked me. Yeah. I didn't think so. Yeah. Well. (laughs) Let's talk about survivor series, 1999, as we mentioned, November 14th is the Joe Lewis arena, Detroit, Michigan. Of course it's a sellout as was everything in 1999, 18,735 fans on hand, 17,294 of those fans paid an incredible gate, $841,095, another 153 grand and change in merchandise. We should mention 
Uh, it's been about six months since we lost Owen Hart in the WWF. He tragically passed away on May 23rd with the over the edge pay-per-view and just a month prior tragedy would strike again. Darren Drozdov would be paralyzed during a match with D'Lo Brown. I don't know if we'll ever talk about, you know, that night in long form. What do you remember about that night where an errant spot left Darren and, uh, in a bad way? Well, you know, it's first of all, it's, it's not ballet and it was a spot that the guys had done every night for, I don't know how long. So it wasn't, it wasn't a crazy spot. It wasn't a dangerous spot. It wasn't something, everything is dangerous. Let me, let me take that back and rephrase that, but it was a freak accident and there's really no other way to explain it. Uh, nobody was sloppy. Nobody was, um, just was, was, a they were off. It was a bad night and turned into an absolutely horribly tragic event that you wouldn't wish on anyone at any time ever. So it was, you know, it's one thing if you could sit back and analyze it and say, ah, well, you know, it was the first time they ever did it. It was, it was this, it was that it was, it was another night. And unfortunately on this night in that moment, something went wrong and they were off just that hair enough that unfortunately Darren was, was paralyzed and, you know, changed, changed both their lives forever. What's the, uh, what's the mood like backstage in a moment like that? And there's only been a handful of times anything like this has happened in wrestling. It's not like there's a, a protocol or something in the WWE handbook, or maybe there is of exactly what to do, but nobody could ever really prepare themselves for something like this. Well, you can have all the protocol in the world and you can lay out a plan the reality of the situation is, is that everybody reacts differently and you, you don't know a lot of times because of the nature of our business. The, the nature of our business is to sell moves and to sell things to make it look like um, it's more dangerous than it actually is sometimes. And sometimes the most dangerous things in the world don't look dangerous. Um, so that in and of itself is a bit of a quandary. However, you know, on this night, um, after the accident took place, I, I will say this, um, that those that did, you know, get involved that after the accident took place, I think that most of the actions that were taken after the fact were the right ones. Uh, nobody moved in the rain. Uh, people let the medical personnel get to them and it was, it was just really really sad. Um, but you're also hopeful at the same time. You, you want to keep telling yourself in the, in the back of your head that it's a stinger. You know, there's, there's so many times where guys have been injured and it has, it's been a stinger or it's been something else. And unfortunately this was much worse than that. And you, you go through and you, you do what you have to do in the moment. Um, so I can't fault anybody after the fact. And it, it just was a moment in time where guys that had done this spot every, every night, uh, missed. And unfortunately it, it, it resulted in a bad way. 
Let's talk about Jim Neidhart. Jim Neidhart is going to sign with the company around the same time of this pay-per-view survivor series 99 and, um, Meltzer would write Jim Neidhart actually received two contracts from the company. One is a typical wrestling booking contract. And the other is a big money contract to be a talent coordinator of a new promotion based huge money. Yeah. This blew me away in my research. Chat me up. What do you remember about this? Well, there was no big money contract by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, as was the norm, Vince got the call. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, is there any any uh, thing that uh, that big uh, bastard, uh, the big rhino? Uh, God damn it! You know, you know, he he's a hell of a god damn. He could help guy, you know, with the power. With the, the, the god damn, he's a strong bastard. And uh, and uh, in that conversation emerged. How could we use Jim Neidhart? There was not any interest in Jim to perform in ring anymore. And we were looking at the time for instructors and for guys to coach and train. There was an opening in Memphis at the time to be able to utilize Jim's. He definitely had the knowledge. He had been through the, the heart dojo and thought, well, you know what, this might be, this might be the spot for Jim to be able to have a career and to continue on without having to take bumps and without having to work in the ring. So it was, it was a favor as it normally was, um, to bring Jim in. And and the idea was to utilize Jim as a trainer in, in our Memphis territory. Business, of course, super hot at this time. Of course, the WWF is now dominating WCW in the Monday night war, but now the biggest star in the business stone cold, Steve Austin is about, there we go. Is about to have to, uh, be sidelined. Thanks to a neck injury. We should mention that we're coming off the no mercy pay-per-view. We saw triple H retain the world title over Steve Austin. And the rock comes down, tries to hit triple H with a sledgehammer, but he misses and hits Austin and that allows Hunter to retain and sets up the main event for survivor series. It's a three-way Hunter, the rock and stone cold, Steve Austin, that pay-per-view, no mercy does 330,000 buys, which is considered a 0.88 buy rate. And, uh, I guess we should go ahead and tell you what Wade Keller reported as we head to this pay-per-view a week from Sunday, rock and Steve Austin face each other in a three-way match at survivor series. Austin is the established star in the wrestling industry and rock is the younger and large and lately arguably the hotter act who may threaten Austin's top position someday. In fact, some believe rock is already threatening Austin's top spot. And if Austin is anything, he is protective of his status as the top star in the company. Rock says all the right things publicly about how he and Austin get along and how there is magic between them when they wrestle each other. But that doesn't mean there won't be tension along the way between them. Shortly after turning babyface after WrestleMania earlier this year, rock teamed with Austin against triple H and boss man on a May 1st house show in Anaheim, California. And during the house show match, rock ruffled Austin's feathers when Austin thought rock was stepping on his toes and trying to get big crowd pops at the expense of the quality of the match rock has since publicly denied reports that there is any said tension with rock, but to this day, 
may not know Austin expressed to others frustration for that match. The two get along, but they are not quote unquote hunting buddies. A lot to unpack here. The rock is on the rise. Stone cold is still the top dog, but maybe that is now being threatened by the rocks popularity. And supposedly you've uh, told us before here on the show, according to the rumor and innuendo stone cold was not always secretive about his feelings about the rock and the rocks rise where you would say, Oh, that eyebrow raising shit ain't going to do anything. Tell me a little bit about what you remember about the tension between the two, not in a necessarily negative way. It's just the competitive juices of the business, the competitive nature indeed, where now there is a little bit of a rivalry here for better or worse. Well, rivalry is good. And I think that anytime that someone is nipping at your heels and you're the top dog, you're looking over your shoulder and they're getting closer and closer. Um, you know, there, there's going to be, I don't know if tension's the right word, but, uh, Steve was definitely noticing rock. Everybody was noticing rock. So I don't know that Steve's position is the, is the top guy was necessarily challenged, but there was definitely a challenge is to, Hey, maybe there can be two top guys. Maybe, maybe there's more room at the top than anybody thought. So openly as, as far as, uh, you know, any open animosity. No, I don't think there was. I think that Steve and any top guy, I'll go all the way back to, to Hulk Hogan, uh, Bret Hart on down the line. Anytime that, a top guy sees somebody coming up behind them starting to get over. There's always that little bit of, um, yeah, well, they, that, that, that one little spot they do right there. Yeah. It gets a big pop, but, uh, can they go 60 minutes brother? Um, so there's always going to be those, I guess, digs or comparisons, what have you. And that's what was happening. Um, man, rock was on the rise. Rock was over about as strong as rock, ever was over in the wrestling business at that time. So Steve starting to take notice, everybody was starting to take notice. And when that happens, it's also an opportunity for other people to stir the pot, <laughs> you know? Okay. Well, there's a little bit of tension. Let's make some more. Let's stir it up a little bit. Um, but I don't think that there was any, ever anything more than just professional jealousy and, and a look of, all right, well, who's the next guy and who's, See if he can actually do it. That kind of a challenge, if you will. Let's talk about where business was year over year. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've often talked about how, you know, it feels like it's a meteoric rise year over year from 96, to 97 to 98 to 99. Believe it or not, in November of 98 compared to November of 99, there's actually a little bit of a dip, but not enough to really notice. We go from an average attendance of 12,341 down to 11,981. So only 2.9%. But here's the much bigger difference. The actual revenue at the gate is up 28%. We go from 244 grand in November of 98 to 313 grand in November of 99. I think that sometimes gets overlooked a little bit, how adjusting ticket prices just a little bit incrementally can really make a big difference when you start to look at the entire year. Absolutely. And, and it is just a little bit, but it's also one of those 
where your premium tickets, there was a premium put on those tickets and they went for more. Those are usually the seats that go first. Every time that you look at a concert, major sporting event or anything, you try to get 50 yard line tickets for a hot football game. Those are the first to go. And they're also the highest priced. So there was a tweak in that, that, Hey, it worked. Something big happens at the beginning of November. Of course, we're talking about the debut of Mick Foley's book. Have a nice day. It debuts at the number three spot on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's the start of a trend of wrestling books that are going to be a big deal over the next handful of years. Were you surprised at how Mick's book caught fire like this? Yes and no. Um, I was surprised at the, I guess at the acclaim that the book got. However, having read it along the way, I wasn't surprised because it was a damn good book. I, I still say that it was probably the best wrestling book that any any of the guys' autobiography or anything that anyone had ever put out. And Mick wrote it himself. So along the way, I was fortunate enough to read it um, all the way through and just thought, damn, this is good. But I know him. Is this going to translate to the general public are they going to be as interested in mick as the wrestling audience and mick was able to make that crossover people were interested in his story he was such a unique character coupled with a very unique individual just the human being himself that he struck the imagination of the american public and they got into his story and mix very well spoken so when you what you look at and you see that mankind character and then when you hear mick foley you go hey wait a minute this guy's not a, a dummy this guy's very well spoken he's very well educated he, he speaks well and he writes even better than he speaks um but mick was engaging and entertaining so no i wasn't surprised but i was surprised at the overall acceptance Overall, let's talk a little bit about the dynamite kids book. It comes out the same month here, November pure dynamite. Of course, this is not released in conjunction with WWE, a much different book, but one that gets a lot of critical acclaim. Did you ever read Billington's book? I didn't. I, I heard about it and you know, the, the rap, uh, on Tom's book was that it was, very bitter and negative. So I really didn't have a desire to read it. Um, don't everybody hate me at once, but I wasn't that interested in the dynamite kid. So I, I didn't, I didn't want to delve more into his career or, or anything else. So I, I just was never overly intrigued with the dynamite kid or, or the bulldog. So there minute, wasn't that big interest there. You're being sincere. Like dynamite kid, most, most fans my age look at as like this revolutionary once in a lifetime performer. You say nay, nay, not to me. I think don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not taking away any of his ability or what he did just for me. It was like, okay. Um, you know, he did it with tiger mask. Tiger mask was, was great. He did it with Fujinami. He did it with a lot of guys that were also revolutionary. Um, and dynamite was great. I just, not my cup of tea. And, and maybe it was because 
I kind of saw the ugly side of the human being that I didn't, I didn't care for him as a human being. I got you. Well, listen, that's different. I was going to say, how the fuck do you like Dory Funk and you can't appreciate dynamite kid, but we know Dory Funk's goddamn Dory Funk Jr. All right, cool. He was Uh, the longest reigning NWA world heavyweight champion in history, holding it longer, you know, one span than anyone else in the history of the NWA. So what will that in a dollar get you? Hey, uh, Meltzer would report Jim Ross, Bruce Pritchard, and Victor Quinones met. Hey, that's on, me. Yes. Uh, October 29th, <laughs> uh, with, uh, well, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Naoto Morishita, the president of dream stage entertainment about possibly doing business next year. Ooh, um, Nobu Hiku. Well, sorry. Nobu Hiko. Nobu, Nobu Hiko Takata. There you or go. Just Takata. Was brought along for the meeting. Nothing was finalized, nor was anything dismissed regarding the potential of doing business. WWF is interested in only running Tokyo Dome show in 2000, either with a pro wrestling organization as its Japanese promoter or with non pro wrestling promoters. They want the show to be on a Friday night. So talent could be back in time for weekend shows. And there was talk of June or October for the show. Although it could really happen at any time. They made it clear that no WWF talent would be allowed to do any shots. And also they weren't going to put any of their top talent in the position of putting over Japanese and wanted the top talent to work with either WWF guys in a Japanese versus WWF headliner as the main event, as would be traditional for Japan. To cover, since Morishita claimed his company wouldn't be doing worked matches in Japan, the claim was that the meeting was about booking Steve Williams for the January 30th Tokyo Dome tournament, but that wasn't going to happen. Canona's made the connection, bringing DSC into the meeting. So DSC, Dreamstage Entertainment, is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, these are the folks behind Pride, right? Yeah, and, and they we're looking to branch out and do some bigger shows and things of that nature. It's funny when these get out, they get all these details of the meeting that are complete horseshit. Um, they came in. The idea was we were looking for as had been traditional in the past, a promoter in Japan to co-promote with someone that already had a foot in the door that was already promoting successfully in Japan that we could then piggyback off of and come in and do our shows and let them be the people on the ground and be the promotion locally in Japan. Um, every time the, the Japanese promotions and offices would spin their stories into, you know, it, it's, it just amazes me that shit that these Japanese booking offices and promotions would be able to spin and to quote the legitimate press in Japan, which was horseshit, just complete horseshit. They were all in on the work, but there were people over here that lived in, you know, like California and shit that would report it as the gospel. And it was God's honest truth because it happened in the Tokyo dome. The, the reality of it was it was an exploratory meeting to see whether or not, Dream Stage was someone that we could work with to promote WWE events in Japan. That's all it was. Nothing more, nothing less. And there was no one in the promotion that they were working with at the time, other than Takata, who was kind of had that niche uh, following in Japan, that meant anything anyway. So 
they would spin it into their own stories and create these fantastic tales of, uh, oh my God, you know, WWE wants to do this with us, but we want to protect it. It's just bullshit. That's what the meeting was. That's a little more boring and not as exciting as, oh my God, they were going to do this. They were going to do that. They, no, it's just, would you be interested in being our representative in Japan? We'd like to explore promoting there. Here's what we'd like to do. Is this something you'd be interested in? How do you think the meeting went? Um, I, I think that in their head that they felt they brought a lot more to the table than they actually did. They were a small promotion in Japan and they didn't, um, they were looking at working with us to make their name bigger. And we were looking at them to essentially be our local promoter. So I think it was a little bit different as far as what they were hoping to accomplish and what we were hoping to accomplish. We weren't looking to enhance their promotion and they were looking to enhance their promotion. Not what we were interested in. What are the, um, cultural differences that make doing business in Japan more challenging? Can you speak about that? I think that overall, what we have discovered is that no different than the audiences in Germany, no differences than the audience in Saudi Arabia, no difference than the audience audiences in England and Ireland, um, China, Japan, that for the most part, the international audience, they are looking for, they've seen the WWE product on television for so many years. They want that. They don't, there, there was this misconception for so many years, again, perpetuated by the Japanese wrestling promotions, that the only way to draw here and the only way you can do business in Japan is to do it with our company. And you've got to have our stars on your show or you will die. That wasn't true. And so we ran into the same thing when we ran England the first time and they told, oh, my God, you must have Big Daddy. Um, the local promoters, they are looking for the rub. But in Japan, I don't know what's different than any place else in the world. They are they do love their wrestling. They're educated on their wrestling. But there was a fan base that loved WWE and all that. They didn't want to see WWE versus there's a segment of them. Don't get me wrong. There's a segment that wanted to see WWE versus new Japan or all Japan. But there was also a segment that just wanted to see a WWE event in Japan. And that's like any place else in the world. Um, I just think there's a mystique to it that has been perpetuated and that, that even the boys, because it was a, a place to go for six weeks, make good money and come back. And nobody ever knew you were there type of situation. Ted DiBiase, he'd get hurt. He'd go away for six weeks, come back and resume his rivalry. So there just was this mystique created about it. And, um, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world that I've ever been. I like, I love Japan. I love Hong Kong. Um, but the doing business, eh, not my favorite thing to do. 
Well, let's talk about Walmart. I know how much you love Walmart. Uh, and this is the era where Walmart is pulling all of the Al Snow action figures. People are complaining that the doll is making light of violence against women. This is um, stemming from complaints from Sabrina Parton, an assistant professor of communications at Kennesaw State University in Georgia. And she's also uh, got the manager of the Walmart in Cartersville, Georgia. And they're going to lead the company to pull the Al Snow dolls, which has a female mannequin head reading, help me scrawled backwards across the forehead. And Parton would complain that the doll sent a message about the brutalization towards women and Walmart reviewed the complaint and decided the doll was a questionable item. So they announced on November 1st that they were removing the Al Snow doll from all their shelves, probably permanently. That's Meltzer's report. And I got to say. Uh, this probably got a lot of collectors excited because when things like this happen, all of a sudden they become a little more rare and it might not be the worst thing in the world for the sales of the action figure, because now it's getting free publicity for the company everywhere. Yeah. And it was positively silly. Um, anybody that looked at Also's character, it was a mannequin head. I don't even know that anybody ever identified it as a female, I, I guess. I, it never crossed my mind that it was female. Yeah. Uh, it was a mannequin head that he talked to. And, and that was the gimmick that Al Snow was a little off kilter and had conversations with this mannequin head. So when we heard that, it was like, what? It's almost unbelievable <laughs> when you, you think about it, but yeah, this one person was able to, to get it off. And as you say, really just made it more valuable by making such a stink about it. Instead of quietly going about it and saying, Oh, Hey, is this questionable? Having a discussion about it. They wanted to get their name out there and get publicity. And all it did was make the doll, the action figure more desirable. Yeah. We're going to get some so heat for calling it a doll, but that's what was written in Meltzer's report. I'm, I'm acutely aware of their, their action figures. So I'll still take well, your tweets though. Yeah. Hey, mine is, it's a completely posable action figure. Talk to me a little bit about, um, how your conversation with Al during this must've went, I mean, for whatever reason, guys are still starting to be on eggshells a little bit in this era because the company's doing so well and it's so big. They really don't want to rock the boat. So when you're getting negative headlines for the company, it's probably natural that Al would have wondered, oh shit, what does this mean for me? Do you remember having a conversation with him about this controversy? I remember having general conversations with him it, just in general, but for Al, Al is a businessman and was able to look at it like, oh shit, does this mean that my action figure is going to be more valuable now? Um, he probably wanted to buy them all and sell them on the black market himself. Um, wasn't, you know, really wasn't that big of a deal. We used it as an opportunity to get our message out and hopefully sell more action figures. If you want the full story of this, uh, Al wrote about it in his book, which I, I can't recommend enough. Uh, seriously, go out of your way. If you're really into wrestling books, which we've been talking about quite a bit today, self-help life lessons from the bizarre wrestling career of Al snow is available on Amazon or anywhere you enjoy books. And while we're plugging books, we should mention uh, a great friend of the show, Dylan uh, Hornswoggle himself. He has a new book. Life is short. And so am I, my life inside, outside and under the wrestling ring is now available at 
Amazon, Barnes and Noble and anywhere else. Did you get a copy of that book? That little bastard. Okay. So I moved into my house here in Connecticut, ran new house. And uh, within the second or third day that I was there, yeah, I got the book. He had, he had sent me a text and said, Hey, you asshole, what's your address? And I didn't even think about it. I sent him my address. And then, uh, next thing you know, there was a book there and we, we, it was like, oh, we got mail, we got mail. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And then I saw it. So thank you, Dylan. Wait, bastard. Your first piece of mail was the Hornswoggle book. My first piece of mail was the Hornswoggle book. Yes. It's sitting on my desk right now. And, uh, I actually will read his cause he's an entertaining son of a gun. Now feels like as good a time of any to mention that, uh, Bruce got a new house and you can too over at save with We're in like 40 some odd States. We'd be glad to hook you up too. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? Save with Conrad.com. NMLS number six, five, zero, eight, four, equal housing lender. Uh, the WWF, the music volume four is another CD that you guys are dropping here in 1999. And I can't believe this is real. This is how silly this was at the time. It goes platinum. It's first week of release these days. You know, obviously the music industry has changed quite a bit, but it is a big deal. If you go platinum in 2019 in 1999, still a big deal. Uh, maybe a little easier than today, but goodness gracious, a CD filled with wrestling themes going platinum. Just another feather in the cap of Vince McMahon. He's found a way to monetize every piece of this fucking business. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, this goes back to even earlier than that. And, and this is one of those where your buddy, uh, criticized and got facts completely wrong and, and put shit out there. Back in the day, uh, early, this was mid-90s, probably early 90s, we had made an international trip, and we had gone over, and we were meeting with different television companies, met with Sky, and we, we just had a lot of business meetings overseas, and it was a string of them. We went from from Paris to Germany to, to England, and along the way, met with a gentleman by the name of Simon Cowell and his partner, another Simon. And it was myself, Shane McMahon, and Wayne DeBand met with them. They presented this concept to us about how the way that the music industry was, and this is still early 90s, was that you still had to take care of the disc jockeys. There was still a lot of payola going on that really hadn't been remedied yet. Explain. So if you have, you keep going, tell everybody what payola means. Payola. If you want, if you wanted to get, if you had a, an album or you had a song, you wanted to get it played. You wanted to sell the thing. Your advertising was radio play. And in order to get a lot of radio play, if you weren't a huge act or, it wasn't already just the number one for whatever reason. You had to pay people along the way to make sure that your album got played. Well, Simon Cowell had been in the music. He was a publisher and was very frustrated with this and, and used to say, he says, you know, I believe that a television star with medium talent would sell more records off of television than the greatest singer and the greatest song in the world just off of radio. So his theory was that you could take anybody, put them on TV, 
have them sing a song. And if you promote it the right way on television, it would sell more albums or records than if you only went about it the traditional way the music industry had always gone about it, which was you cut a song, you send it out, you hope it gets played, you pay some money to people to make sure it gets played, and then you hope it hits. His feeling was, give me a star on TV, sing a song, I'll sell albums. We were the number one television show in the UK at the time. So his theory was he wanted to take the most unlikely of singers, that being WWE talent, and make an album. He was going to surround them with musicians that knew what the hell they were doing. And just, you know, Randy Savage sings or The Undertaker sings, Bret Hart sings and publicize it and promote the shit out of it on our television show and our television show only. And it would sell, it would, it would do very well. Well, it did a lot better than he even uh, expected, but it was the precursor to American Idol. And, you know, Britain's got talent and all the other uh, machinations of the talent show that Simon Cowell made famous. Um, Cause he, that proved his theory. We did the videos. We only played it on our television show, and the damn thing went platinum in a week. Uh, so it was, you know, and, and I had actually told this story to Dixie Carter, um, like in 2011. And, and of course, uh, one of the so-called journalists printed. And now Bruce Pritchard's claiming he invented American Idol. No, I didn't. Uh, this is what happened. <laughs> um, the story I just told. So again, that's where shit just gets blown out of proportion and, and what have you. But, uh, I thought Simon Cowell was a absolute genius and he was very simple in his presentation. Um, and it worked and obviously it worked. He has gone on to build a billion dollar company. So good for him. I do want to mention that, uh, Meltzer would write here that it's expected to debut around number four on the charts, which is considered quote, nothing short of phenomenal volume three peaked at number 10. And it wasn't until several weeks after its release. And it didn't debut with anything even remotely close to the first week that this one did. So kudos to you guys. Let's get to the pay-per-view. You haven't seen this for the first time. You saw this this week for the first time in a long time. So it's been 20 years. The opening match here, Godfather and D'Lo are going to team up with the Headbangers to win an elimination match over the Dudleys and the Acolytes. They go nine minutes and 36 seconds, two and a quarter stars. Um, it's an interesting finish because Godfather finally tags in and then he squashes Bubba with the hoe train and D'Lo pins him with the frog splash. And there you go. Um, Godfather and D'Lo. Standing tall. What do you think of the match? Well, I think when you look at the foresight of 1999, that Godfather and D'Lo would be in charge of anyway. Uh, <laughs> it was a good combination, uh, and it was. A, I thought it was fine. I thought it was was a decent opener. Uh, I got to tell you, overall. For this pay-per-view, I thought, I watched it, it was like, eh, it, it was either didn't hold up well over time or just not that special. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And this this match kind of was it says it all in one match. It was okay, but it was a match and it was okay. And, and the card was a card and it was okay. Well, the uh, the next match is one of the ones that I'm most interested in. It's Kurt Angle's first televised match, and we know what a legend Kurt Angle is going to go on to become here in professional wrestling. And in his first match, he's got an interesting dance partner, Sean Stasiak, who I know we've uh, spent a lot of time talking about. They're going to go five minutes, fifty six seconds. So Meltzer would say they figured this one right. Angle came out doing some really good seventy style wrestling in thirty seconds. And the place was already chanting boring by the 92nd mark. They were booing angle and all he had done was a lot of good wrestling moves. Angle turned heel on the fans, telling them you don't boo an Olympic gold medalist. He wound up winning with a Samoan drop angle looked impressive. And this was the best Stasiak has looked since coming to the WWF. Not that anyone actually picked up on it. Star and a half. We've done a whole show on Kurt angle available in the archives at something to wrestle.com, but. Humble beginnings here, man. They're booing him right away. Well, they were meant to boo him. That that was music to our ears. Kurt had done the vignettes talking about the three eyes, the integrity, intensity, and whatever the fuck else it was. Um, but that's the funny thing. People, there, there were some people that thought, oh, my God, he, he's an Olympic gold medalist. He can only be a baby face. When you watch those vignettes, if you didn't see a heel, then you don't know. I don't know what the hell you were seeing. Um, Kurt was meant to be a heel from day one with those vignettes, and it, and it worked. We, you know, the, the idea was for Kurt to go out there and dazzle him with his wrestling, but to kind of Dory Funk him. You know what I mean? Go sure. on out and, and have the match that is good, but it's not. Stone Cold Steve Austin whooping everybody's ass. And yeah, they boot the shit out of him. And they booed him for a couple of reasons because he was good and he told them he was good and went out and did his job. So we were extremely pleased with it. I thought it was a great debut for Kurt and set the stage for what was to come. And it actually it actually came faster than we thought. We thought, well, you know what? I think there are still people, like you said, were we surprised that, that he was booed? I think there were people that were surprised that he was booed. Because it's like, he's an Olympic gold medalist. What the fuck are you doing here? He's Kurt Angle. Can't boo him. Um, but that's what we wanted, and they did, and they, thank God. Hear more about Kurt in our archive, something to wrestle.com. Sean Stasiak here. Uh, anything else you want to mention about Sean? We've talked about him off and on for quite a while. Well, the reason that Sean was picked for this match was that Sean had been in training with Kurt at the time. So other than one, we wanted Kurt to be comfortable other than using my brother, who was the one that had gone around on all of the, uh, live events that Kurt was going in, in the sea towns and different places. Kurt had worked with Tom everywhere. Kurt had, had been working a while with, with other guys, but we wanted to make sure that Kurt would have a level of comfort. And there was a level of comfort with Sean because they had, had started training together. And that's why Sean was picked. 
Next up, we've got Val Venus, Mark Henry, Gangrel, and Steve Blackman. How about that for a cast of characters? Let me run through that again. Val Venus, the porn star, Mark Henry, sexual chocolate, Gangrel, the vampire, and the karate man, Steve Blackman. That's one team. And they're going to take on the British Bulldog, Rodney, Pete Gass, and Joey Abs. Uh, this one is, uh, well, an interesting match to say the least. It gets a quarter star. They go nine minutes and 10 seconds. And Meltzer would say Pete Gass is getting better, but he and Rodney were really exposed badly on the big stage where they had to go a few minutes. Gas clearly didn't belong there. And the lack of heat only emphasized it. Finally, Blackman put him out of his misery with a pin after a high kick and two fifty six. So the match sort of is what it is, but I don't know that this was the best idea to put a couple of, uh, Shane's real life friends who have nominal training at best on a pay-per-view. What say you? Well, shit, it wasn't their first pay-per-view and it was, um, it was a great story. They were great characters. They did try training, but no, they were the drizzling shits. But when, <laughs> when you go back, I started laughing when I was looking at this because you look at your quote, babyface team, Val, porn stars, you yeah, said, yeah. sexual chocolate, Mark Henry, the vampire gang grill and the human killer, uh, Steve Blackman against the British bulldog, Davy boy Smith, Rodney, Pete and Joey. It just was a hodgepodge of hodgepodge that it was in Washington. Going, what in the fuck, how, and why was this done? And I couldn't come up with an answer. It just was, it must've been one of those who's left. Oh shit. Got these guys left. Well, put them on, put them on the pay-per-view. Ah, ah, Mark Henry can team with (laughs) made no sense. Just no sense at all. This is one of the, um, the first pay-per-views where Vince Russo is not involved. Of course, we know the October pay-per-view, No Mercy, we've covered before. We mentioned that you know, he left in early October, but maybe some of his booking plans and structure was already in place for that show. Probably not here for Survivor Series. Do you think it hurt some of the uh, middle-of-the-card guys? Because for all the criticism that many others have put on Vince Russo, most unanimously people say, man, everybody had a storyline. There were no forgotten players when Russo was writing specifically with the middle of the match. They not only had matches, but they had storylines and there were stakes and angles that maybe didn't exist like that before or after. Was this evident when you watched this pay-per-view back that boy, you could tell that some of this was just throwing shit against the wall. It was, and it, and it was. Also kind of like the, the aftermath too, of things shaking out and trying to figure out, you know, what, what to do next, because you're right. Russo had stories for everybody. If you were on TV, you had a story. Um, and while someone summed it up the other day, they said, well, yeah, cause Vince was taking care of all of the main storylines and the stuff that was drawing the money. And then Vince was able to not have as much oversight on some of the underneath programs but at least there were underneath programs and not as much attention was, was paid to that after the fact, because everybody was looking at what's drawing the money. And I do think that there was 
a lot of good in anybody that's on TV having a story. Just makes it more interesting. At no mercy, May Young would help Moolah to defeat Ivory to win the women's title. And on the October 21st episode of SmackDown, Moolah would defend that title against May, but Ivory interfered in the match and attacked both. Eventually, Jacqueline and Luna join in on the attack, and Tori comes out and helps our 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 older ladies, May and Moolah. And then on the October 25th Raw, Moolah decides to vacate her title and retire from wrestling. But Ivory reminds Moolah of her rematch clause and then beats her for the title. And that sets us up here. May Young, the fabulous Moolah, Tori, and Deborah are going to beat Jackie, Terry, Luna, and Ivory. And the entire match is a minute and 53 seconds. It gets a negative star and a half. Meltzer would say it was really awful, but at least it was kept short enough that Lawler never ran out of recycled Hill and Hart jokes about Moolah and May Young. Young took a bump out of the ring right away, and then Jackie delivered the worst DDT in history on Tori. Moolah and May delivered the slowest double clothesline in history on Ivory and uh, Moolah Pinder. He says, picture Steve Williams and Terry Gordy doing that double tackle spot in their primes. Okay, this match looked nothing like that. Deborah pulled Terry's top off after the match, leaving her in a black bra, and for whatever reason... Someone must be getting nervous because they clearly avoided shooting Terry from the front in her bra and mistakes like that simply don't happen on WWF broadcasts. Lawler did get to say that her cups runneth over. It fell short or long of its promise of being the worst match of all time. Not the worst match of all time, but good Lord. What's the thinking in trying to put us through this? You just wanted to slide some quote TNA out there. Yeah, that's why we had Moolah and May on there. Um, Moolah and May were probably the two best workers in the match. Well, they were the best workers in the match. It was fun. It was a let-up. It was it, Instead of going to a commercial, okay, since you can't have that on pay-per-view, you go to this match, and you let people up for a minute and let them have fun and and just go with it. That's what it was designed to do. That's what it was for, and it wasn't meant to be taken seriously or be an 18-star uh, Yokohama dome match. It's, uh, it was fun. That's what it was meant to do. Next up was a match between former partners, Kane and X-Pac at no mercy. X-Pac defeated Kane for and Bradshaw on a four corners elimination match. So as a result of losing the X-Pac, Kane starts showing jealousy towards him and their team starts to break up on October 28th. On SmackDown, X-Pac would betray Kane during a tag team match against the Dudley boys. He's going to low blow him. And that allows the Dudley boys to pin Kane for the win. And then a few days later on the November 1st episode of raw DX would attack Kane between a match or during a match between Kane and X-Pac. And that leads to this one. You would think that, uh, this is going to have a ton of heat. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. It's a DQ in four minutes and 14 seconds. Kane gets the win. Uh, ultimately, um, this is just silly. Triple H runs in and hits Kane with the title belt for the DQ. Tori's going to come back for the save, but X-Pac not saying it was a woman gave her a spin kick, which she sells is great. And there's your finish. So this is, this doesn't feel like a pay-per-view match or blow off. Clearly it's not. We're just continuing to build some more. I got to tell you, man, at this point in watching the show back this week, I'm like, 
fuck, this is a terrible pay-per-view. Wasn't one of the better ones, that's for damn sure. And, you know, when you when you look at, which we'll get into with, with Steve, and, and you, you get the vibe of the overall feeling of dread, <laughs> you know, building up to this show and, and Steve's condition that you kind of lose sight, I guess, sometimes of everything else. And this was an opportunity. The whole idea behind Kane and X-Pac was that Kane cared and Kane cared enough that you saw some feelings with the jealousy with X-Pac and starting to tell that story. But we weren't ready to, to have the match. In my opinion, I don't think enough had been done yet. And I think it was rushed. Let's talk a little bit about um, the kick because the guy who chooses the replay angle is not so great. Uh, the first replay shows that he missed the, the kick by a foot and every other replay is not as obvious, but the first time it happened, it looked like it was legit to me, but all the replays show. Wow. Um, Meltzer would say X-Pac is the best wrestler I've ever seen that almost always has bad matches on pay-per-views half a star. What do you make of? Meltzer's assertion that X-Pac is the best wrestler he's ever seen that always has bad matches on pay-per-view. I don't know about the best wrestler he's ever seen, but I, I, I do not agree with the X-Pac not having good matches on pay-per-view. Um, I, I just don't agree with that. I, that's kind of crazy to me. Was this match great? No, it wasn't. It was rushed and it was, a, it was a, story that was meant to get started and get out there and it wasn't you know really wasn't designed to be the end all be all either um but yeah i i I disagree with that i don't think that that sean had bad matches on pay-per-view he had a few stinkers we all do well i don't know you know it's funny because waltman's such a great friend of the show and I think everybody pretty much unanimously praises him as like the measuring stick of whether or not you're a good wrestler. And we've heard that enough and seen so many great matches on TV. That's really kind of hard to argue, but then you hear a criticism like this. And I start to think, well, damn, how many classic pay-per-view matches do I remember? Because most of the matches I really enjoyed, I seem to remember being on TV. Uh, I think maybe he's like Mr. Monday night raw and we never noticed. Yeah, but I also think that when you look at his overall performance, that is what you remember, and you remember uh, everything that he delivered. So to pick out uh, out of fifty-two matches a year, <laughs> let's say let's say he worked every week, and then out of you pick twelve out of those, that's I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah, we're finally here. So. We're going to talk about something that you've. Enjoyed us talking about before, but we'll get to hit it again. Now on the October 18th episode of raw, the big boss man would challenge big show to a match where he agreed to defend the hardcore title and big show accepts the challenge. However, before the match, big show leaves the arena to check on his father who had reportedly died in storyline. And the report was later revealed as a plan of the big boss man. A few days later on SmackDown. Big Show attempts to attack Bossman, but Bossman escapes, and then Big Show assaults a police officer. A few days later on Raw, Bossman will distract Big Show during his match with Prince Albert, 
Albert would attack big show from behind. And then boss man would break big shows. Father's watch with a hammer. A few days later on SmackDown, Al Snow had a match with boss man and Albert continuously interfered in the match and the two attacked snow, leading him to challenge both men to a hardcore match in the parking lot. And later that night, boss man and Albert went to the parking lot to wrestle snow, but instead of snow, big show appeared and he trapped boss man and Albert in a car, smashed it into pieces and then pushed a dumpster on top of the car. And here we go. On the November 1st episode of raw Bossman and Albert attack big show during an interview. And the next week on raw, a tribute is paid to big show's father on his death. Bossman came out and insulted big show and his father. And on the November 11th episode of SmackDown footage is shown of the big boss man interrupting the big show's father's funeral. He's going to attack big show and then ruin the grave. Hey, your daddy's dead. What a fucking spectacle. This scene, you know, the entire piece of creative and what's crazy is I think so many people remember this and they're like, oh, well that was all Vince Russo. Russo's out of here. Like two weeks before any of this even starts. Talk to me about the funeral. I know we've covered it before on our big boss man episode, but what a piece of footage. That, that ran across all of our timelines as a 20 year anniversary. This, this scene, tell us about it, Bruce. Mm. Well, I remember getting the phone call at home. I was living in Monroe, Connecticut, and it was, uh, either a Saturday or a Sunday over the weekend. And it was one of those, hey, pal, uh, you know, we got this uh, shoot over there in the, in the cemetery. I think it's up there close by you. I wonder if you could uh, just, you know, slide by and, you know, maybe help him out there a little bit. It turned from helping him out to, yeah, I need you to go shoot this <laughs> you know, type of deal. And I didn't have a whole lot of the creative. It just was very broad strokes. It, the idea for the whole angle was, you know, Big Show's idea. And now we're, we're at this point, but we just got, you know, the, the shoot got crazier and crazier as, as we got there. We're looking around and can we do this and can we do that? And what about this and what about that? And I had been reminded several times throughout the time while I'm there from the groundskeeper and the gentleman who ran the cemetery. Okay, guys, um, we have a cemetery, uh, a cemetery. We have a funeral, a graveside service that will be taking place. Let's say two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, can you guys either be done by then or can we wait until the service is after? I said, I don't worry, man. We won't do anything to disrupt. And then I was also made sure that we don't mess up the cemetery, the grounds or anything like that. Well, that we tried. Okay. We tried. But it just get, kept getting crazier and crazier, and we had the uh, what was meant to be 
similar to the Blues Brothers police car that they had where they went around town promoting the Blues Brothers concert tonight, Jake and Elwood Blues, and, and thought that that'd be great for Boss Man to have. So he's got this this cop car with the big speaker on top of it and it worked and it actually worked. And as we go through this, man, there are, it's a weekend. So there are families that are coming, you know, with their children to visit Grammy and Poppy's headstone, leave some flowers and pay their respects and what have you. And there's this whole television production going on kind of in the middle of the cemetery because it was the only place they had where we could actually dig a hole and do this whole thing. Um, and I needed to get it done. So we laid it out. We just said, okay, let's do it. So there was actually a service going on in the cemetery with people around a, a gravesite, And we tied up a casket to the back of a car and drug it through the cemetery, tearing up the grounds as, as we drove away with the big show, jumping on the casket and riding it for a while before taking one of the worst bumps in the history of the business. And as soon as we did it, I said, okay, guys, we're out of here. And we left and I left my, uh, production manager to kind of deal with the, the fallout, but I got a call the next day and was told that we would never be able to use that cemetery again, which I kind of knew, um, as I was hightailing it out of there, but it goes down as probably one of the best pieces of television that, that has ever existed. It's unbelievable that this is all happening around the same time. So here we go. Um, this leads to a survivor series match between big shows team of Funaki, Takamichinoku and the blue Mani, and the boss man's team, which is Prince Albert viscera and Midian. And on the November 14th episode of heat, big show attacks all of his team members, which drew withdrew them from the team. And now it's a four on one handicap match. It lasts a minute and 27 seconds. And, uh, Meltzer says, I guess it could have been worse, but that's like saying a mugging could have been a shooting negative one star. The idea is big show just most through everybody choke slam and pins median in 18 seconds, Albert and 30 viscera at 55 boss man just runs away and he's counted out. You're getting over what a monster that the big show is here, but kind of a silly way to arrive here. Okay. Um, no, it was, you know, it was something to try to bring some kind of life in relatability with the big show. It's kind of hard to relate to a giant and, um, it was designed to, to try and make him a little more relatable. So we, we were heavily invested at this point in time in the big show experiment. A week prior to this on November 7th. The WWF would post on their website that Big Show's father had passed away due to cancer. Of course, that's a worked angle. Paul White's father had actually died years prior. But now that we've killed Big Show's dad, now let's kill the territory. Let's kill the Golden Goose. At this point in the show, Austin is backstage and he's hit by a car. Actually, I guess a stuntman was hit by a car. 
and we were emphatically told that Austin hadn't lost consciousness. They didn't want anyone to think for a second. They were teasing that Austin was dead only that he'd been maimed bad enough that they have a storyline excuse for him to not wrestle. Meltzer would say all those people who watched David Flair stuntman take the same hit two weeks ago when WCW and him come back without even a scratch a few days later, while Austin will be out for months, months must think that David Flair is the toughest SOB in all of pro wrestling. Of course, Vince leaves with Austin to the hospital. So therefore he can't ref the main event. A lot to unpack here. This is going to be a major storyline. And obviously when stone cold comes back, we're going to, uh, find out who was the man in the car. And at that point it will be revealed that it was Rikishi. What's the famous line, Bruce. Do you remember? I did it for the rock brother, but that wasn't the original plan. I believe the original plan didn't fucking exist. Uh, we, uh, a few years ago at a live something to wrestle in LA, we had the architect of this storyline and it's someone that a lot of wrestling fans may not remember the name of, uh, but he is, uh, I guess the guy who's going to step into the old Vince Russo shoes here after Vince heads South catch us up here, Bruce. Well, you know, the, the bigger issue here is we had gone as far as we could go. And there was different, different, um, prognosis, different diagnosis of could Steve go, could Steve not go. And it it literally went up until the last minute where there was, there was some hope that Steve would be able to perform in some capacity and that we would still be able to have the match. And, and at the very last minute, it was determined that we're not going to be able to have Steve in the match in, in, in any way, shape or form that it just, it just wasn't going to work and, and we couldn't do it. Well, he was there and it's like, um, fuck, got to do something to get rid of him. And, and this was, this was come, this is what they came up with, uh, that if he was, he was injured as far as David flair and that shit, nobody watched that no. anyway. Well, so don't worry about commenting on that. How far in advance did you know he's out? Probably the day before or n- night before. How do you find out Vince calls you? I don't think, I don't think I found out until day of actually, See, so, but I don't, I don't think anybody else found out until late the night before the, the and, and again, it was still, you know, on, on the ropes could go either way. And I think they finally made the decision late the night before I didn't know till day of talk to me a little bit about what the creative was going to be, you know, a week prior. Do you remember what was, what, what was the creative going to be a week prior? Like before you knew Austin was hurt, not with this Um, angle, with the main event. Come on, help me out. I I really don't remember. I, you you know, again, it's one of those deals you block out when you've got to change course. Sure. You, you forget what the fuck you had sometimes. Um, and you, and you move on and go, okay, well, we're fucking not going there. So is this an opportunity to, to get somebody else over and to elevate someone? Um, 
I, I, honest to God, don't have a fucking clue. So you get to the building, you're told Austin's out, whatever TV you had, whatever future angles you had, everything's thrown into chaos. Do you remember if you had a specific idea or had you guys already arrived at this idea? Had they already arrived at this idea by the time you knew? No, I think it was, I think it was decided throughout the day and, and it was, it was brought up in a production meeting and several people had input into it. Um, from having a single match with rock and triple H to, is it a place for someone else to be elevated, which is how big show got involved in it. Um, there, there were a lot of suggestions that were bandied back and forth, but it was kind of one of those closed doors that only Vince's <laughs> Vince is going to know, and he's going to make the decision. Talk to me a little bit about. You know, the other ideas that were presented that you recall, was there an idea with, um, you know, once you guys decide on, we're going to do the stuntman thing, you have to find a stuntman day of, which I assume is not always easy. Maybe it is. I don't know. Detroit stuntman industry, but once you figure out, okay, we're going to, we're going to hit it. We're going to hit Steve quote unquote with a car. Do you know, or is anybody even discussing what the payoff is going to be? Or is it just, we just got to get him off TV. We'll figure it out later. Yeah. we got to get him off TV and we'll figure it out later. I think there were a lot of assumptions. It would be triple H or a lot of assumptions could have been Vince. There were a lot. I mean, there were a lot of names banning back and forth, but at that point you didn't know if Steve was ever going to come back. Will there be a payoff to the story anyway? So it was, let's get through the night and we'll worry about all that other shit later. So you, you didn't have to, that wasn't, that was the least of the, of our worries at that point. Well, what the fuck is the payoff? It's, it's, you've got a show you've got to get on and you've got, you've got to do something. So ultimately tell everybody the, uh, the name of the person who came up with the idea. Uh, it's Tommy Blancha. I think that, you know, ultimately Tommy and Tommy Blancha and Brian Gewertz had started right after, uh, Russo had left. As a matter of fact, I think they were, they were starting the, the, the TV that Russo left. And I believe this is, uh, he's like creative director for the company here in 1999. And I imagine, you know, very quickly into this on one of your first nights on the job, Hey, by the way, um, the biggest star that we have, he's out. So you got to come up with a way to come up with something. And the idea is we're going to hit him with a car. Hope this goes well. He told us in LA that one of the ideas that had been presented was to reveal who it could have been driving the car. And one of the ideas, unbelievably would be that after the car struck Steve Austin, the trunk would pop open. An orange light would glow and a bunch of orange balloons would escape from the trunk. And maybe even the tag would say the number 13, the idea being that the person who ran over Steve Austin was Taz. I don't know, man. I got to tell you the idea of there being orange fucking balloons feels like the least Taz thing ever. I'm glad you didn't do that. Do you remember any other? I wish I would have. And why is that? That would have been hot. Oh, God. And then Austin's promos come back. Hot damn, can I tell you? Whoever the hell it is, I'm going to pop your balloon. Uh, 
balloon fest. God damn it. Can you just imagine well, the Taz promos where he's like, you know, the one man crime spree in the path of rage with orange fucking balloons. You got something against balloons? I don't know, dude. Just doesn't seem badass. Like I don't remember there ever being a badass who like his calling card was balloons. Oh, Besides, um, what, what about, what about fucking Pennywise? Oh, Jesus. What are you doing? Hey, so well, fucking his calling car was a goddamn balloon. He'd stick them fucking balloons out through the goddamn gutter. And then he'd bring you on down into the gutter and kill you with them fucking teeth. <laughs> with them fucking teeth. Yeah. Oh my God. So, you know, at this point, are you freestyling in your head? Hey, here's who it could be. Or is it just fucking, okay, we got that done next. Next. This is just unbelievable. It, it wasn't something we needed to know right then. Here's the other thing I want to ask, you know, Meltzer of course was always so critical of this. He's going to take you guys to task in the observer for bait and switch. Lots of people paid 30 bucks for this pay-per-view or whatever it was thinking they were getting stone cold in the main event. And they're not. Was that ever even discussed in times like this with Vince or did Vince sort of have the opinion of goddamn pal creative license? Well, first of all, it is creative license. And when you're in that situation and you don't know the answer to that, you know, he may think that, oh, they had this plan. They've known for a week. They've known for days. That's not the case. And, and if, and again, unless he was in Vince McMahon's head, he doesn't fucking know. And if he's listening to whatever person is telling him shit, then unless they're in Vince's head, they don't know either. Unless they're fucking there in those fucking meetings when the actual decision and everything is known and made. So for him to know any more than anyone else did is absolutely ludicrous. We didn't know till the last minute. And there was always hope there's, you know, where you sit back and go, well, goddamn, there's got to be something we can do until you get to that critical moment of you've got to make a decision. And the show must go on and you move forward and try to deliver something better than what was advertised. That's what you try to do. There's never, ever any intent. You know, it's not like we sit there and go, oh, hey, how are we going to fuck the public this time? That's that's ridiculous. But that's what he makes it sound like sometimes. It, it's never the case. You're always looking to over-deliver, to under-promise and over-deliver, and deliver something better than what was advertised, hopefully. But that's not the intent. So it was frustrating because you don't know. And, and it was a day-to-day thing. Steve, how are you feeling? I think I could go today. Next day, goddamn, I woke up. I couldn't move. And doctors, you, you would take two different doctors with two different opinions. So it, it was... It was a game day, you know, type deal. And I, I think that in Vince's head, I think he made the decision, you know, the night before. Um, probably really didn't make it till day of, but, you know, it's not made till it's made all the time. And you just, you, you try to, you try to deal with the information you have at the time. That's all you can do. You can hope and wish and, and, and pray and, 
hope something's going to work out. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. In this case, it didn't. We had to do something. Let's talk about the next match. It's for the Intercontinental title. How interesting is this? China is going to defend against Chris Jericho. At the No Mercy pay-per-view, China became the first women to win the Intercontinental title by beating Jeff Jarrett. On the October 18th episode of Raw, China would issue an open challenge, which is answered by Jericho, whose insults prompt China to attack him and lead to this match. And this is the first of three they'd wind up having against each other. This one goes 13 minutes and 45 seconds. It gets uh, one star. Meltzer would say, simply put, China looked horrible and was totally exposed when trying to do an actual long singles wrestling match without the use of copious amounts of furniture to camouflage the work. Jericho worked really hard. Actually, so did China, but it was a major styles clash. Actually, that's not true because that would require China to actually have a style. But it was so bad in the beginning that it actually made it good at the end. There was even a funny spot where Jericho did the low kick and China no-sold it. China threw forearms over and over that looked so bad after one sequence the crowd, not all of them, but the majority of the males turned on her. And when Jericho came back, he was heavily cheered. And JR would even start comparing this match to Holyfield and Lewis, which is a pretty bad idea if you watch both shows because... This match made Holyfield and Lewis seem like Masawa and Kobashi. Who? I knew you'd say that. Uh, well, no, I mean, I'm, but to, to the majority, to, to the majority of the fucking WWE audience, who? One star. What'd you think of uh, this match and China getting the win? Way too fucking long. Way too long way too fucking long and they tried to have a match china wasn't in my opinion you you take a look at china and you want to present her as an attraction and you want to be able to present her as the eighth wonder of the world and keep her special the more that she is out there the more that you can see through her stuff it's it hurts the attraction because that's when you realize well wait a minute when she just does one or two moves and she's very impactful, that's great. Um, it's like ECW and the bell ringing. Well, goddamn, now they got to have a match. Uh-oh. Same thing with China. It was she had a great gimmick that when she did a few things and, and you were able to camouflage her work and everything that she did, stuff with Jeff Jarrett that she did with the, the Better Homemaking match, was camouflage. They had a lot of toys to play with here. I think Chris took it as a challenge to go out and have a great match. You know, nobody wanted to see a great match. They wanted to see China do her shit and get out. And I think that in China's mind, she had something to prove. She wanted to prove to people, well, I'm more than just a gimmick. And sometimes You'd need to protect that gimmick and not don't do what you don't do well. And this was a case of, of her being put in a position, her putting herself in that position, Chris putting himself in that position and everyone else allowing it to happen. I, I think that, uh, 
I think Chris should have been more selfish and said no and shortened it up. I think China should have been more selfish and, and just done what she did that was big and impactful. And um, allowing them to do that on pay-per-view, I think that people were, you know, went out and said, okay, maybe she can do it. Maybe this, maybe this will enhance that attraction. And, and I, it didn't. It just didn't. It hurt it, in my opinion, because all of a sudden it's I don't want to see her working. I don't want to see her having matches against guys doing stunts against guys, having some physicality. Cool. But not a 20 minute match. It, it just was way, way too long and way too complicated. The uh, the finish is a what most would call a terrible looking pedigree off the top for the pin. And he even says, admittedly, that wouldn't be the easiest move to pull off. But here's the, the note I found interesting. Maybe the office will see the fact that the last three minutes had meat, had heat and not realize it's because China was exposed, but enough fans didn't catch it, creating a divisiveness of the crowd, which makes often for the best heat possible and think it's because Jericho was so popular and give him a push. But then if they misread that, they'll think he's a face and they'll ruin everything by turning him too soon. We've just talked about Chris Jericho on the show very recently in this era. Did you guys really, I mean, did you, maybe not you guys, let me just drill it down to you. Did you feel like he was hitting his stride? He was finding his place or he was still dog paddling at this point. No, I thought he was finding it. I thought that he was coming out and he was emerging as one of those guys that was going to break through. Uh, this was an opportunity where you got to see a lot more of Chris's personality and yeah, to me, he was breaking through. Bring out the, the other side. Yeah. Interesting matchup next because 14 minutes and 26 seconds. We've got Hardcore Holly, Crash Holly, and Too Cool taking on Edge and Christian and the Hardy Boys. Meltzer would say it's a good match, but pretty well destroyed by zero heat. Quote, they weren't giving any favors coming in after the audience was told Austin wasn't going to appear. But it was also clear whatever good goodwill the Hardys and Edge and Christian had earned from their classic match just a few weeks back had already been forgotten. Hardcore Holly and uh, Too Cool, they're actually going to get the win here. Three stars, Meltzer would say. This is one of those rare matches that's actually tons better if you watch it with the sound off because you're not influenced by the fact the crowd wasn't making any noise at all for the hard work. So it's a pretty good match here, but... My goodness, the crowd is just impossible here. Well, I think we took the wind out of their sails, unfortunately, um, with the Austin announcement. And this match had no story. Right. It, it was put together. Of, look, you had eight great workers out there. And he's right, the match was good. But nobody cared. Nobody really cared. And it was... As good as it was, it was almost, when you watch it, it was almost boring. If that makes any sense? Because there was no, there weren't any high emotions. It was just eight guys out there having a match. And that was all it was. Well, let's talk about how we got to our next match. On the October 18th episode of Raw, Foley would give his tag team partner, The Rock, a copy of his new book. But later that same night, that same copy of the book is discovered by Al Snow in a trash can. 
in actuality, it's Val Venus that threw it away. And Al Snow would inform Foley about the book being in the trash. And of course, Foley confronts the rock about it and the rock is denying throwing it away. But as a result of this, Foley breaks up the rock and sock connection. And later that night, Foley calls rocket himself, the tag team championships against the Hollies by coming out for the match without wearing mankind gear and leaving rock to wrestle on his own. And this allowed the Hollies to beat rock for the titles on the November 4th episode of SmackDown. Al Snow and Mankind would defeat the Hollies to win the tag titles. And on the November 8th episode of Raw, the Outlaws would defeat Mankind and Al Snow for the tag team championship. And that leads to this match where the New Age Outlaws would retain over Al Snow and Mankind in 13 minutes and 49 seconds. Meltzer would say it was real sad to see Al Snow getting pounded on and Mankind in the corner clapping his ass off to get the crowd going and nothing happened. Uh, star and a quarter, sort of the same story as the last one. Lots of time. They're telling a good story, very talented, capable over performers in the ring, but the crowd, man, they ain't here for it. They want Austin. He's not here. They are not happy. Yeah. It was kind of like dousing the water, dousing the water, dousing the audience in cold water. Um, it was good that I, I thought that the match was good. Just again, nobody cared. And this was a this was a product of Al and Mick being friends and Mick wanting to work with Al and do some do some fun stuff. They had great chemistry outside of the ring, and it was an opportunity to try and bring that creativity onto the screen. Um, not bad, but it was it wasn't as good. I think coming off of the rock and sock connection to the uh, the head and sock connection, just eh, not that big. Let's talk about how we got to our next match. Of course, it's not gotten time. We're finally here. Uh, as we touched on earlier, the rock defeated the British bulldog. And later that night, the rock would challenge the winner of the world title, triple H and Austin for the championship. After issuing the challenge, rock is attacked by triple H with a sledgehammer. Later that night, rock comes out with a sledgehammer to hit triple H, but misses and hits Austin costing him the match on the October 18th raw rock would issue a challenge to triple H for a match for the title at survivor series. And Austin also issued a challenge and claimed that he deserved a title shot against the rock. The Vince then steps in and makes it a triple threat. And it's supposed to be rock Austin and triple H instead. Big show is going to be your new champion. Uh, Meltzer would say they had no heat in the ring, but the crowd got into it as they brawled in the entrance way. Triple H was body slammed through a table, which woke the crowd up. And then rock hit big show with a fire extinguisher and later the ring bell. Uh, they're doing everything they can here pulling out all the stops. Eventually, uh, Shane is involved and he's going to run in wearing a referee shirt. And Vince is going to show up looking to save the day. He's going to hit triple H with a belt missing the first time as a tease connecting the second time big show gets the choke slam on triple H and gets the pin two and a half stars. Why the pivot to big show here? Trying to do something new and different. And you're looking at the investment that you've got in big show, not necessarily didn't really pan out in the beginning and 
it was an opportunity to say, okay, let's see what the big son of a bitch can do. And let's put some steam behind him. It's new. I don't think anybody saw it, including us. Um, so you, you put him out there and you, you create a new champion and try to create a new and a different story. Um, I think that people had, had you gone with either rock or triple H, I'm not sure that they would have been happy with either one of them either. You know what I mean? At that point, it's really, you want what you can't have. Right. You just hit the nail on the head. So the philosophy was give them something completely new and that they didn't expect. And nobody's going to call that. And now you can create a new story with big show involved in it. Um, and hopefully there's not going to be a comparison to Austin. He's a giant big shows an attraction. Um, it was an experiment. It was, I, I want to, it I wanna was, let's try on. something. Let me dig in on something you just said. He's not going to be compared to Austin. He's a giant. How much of that played into the decision, you know, to go with big show as opposed to someone else who was of similar stature? I think a lot for the comparisons. I think if you had kept it on triple H, people would have been upset because Austin went in the match. If you moved it to, to rock, it would be, Oh, they're just trying to shove rock down my throat. Now there needed to be a third person in there. Um, Mick might've worked. But I think that at the time, looking at the available candidates, Big Show probably made the most sense because, again, it's he's so different than everyone else. Let me ask, you know, when you said um, Mick could have worked, given the fact that they just on TV broke up Mankind and Rock, wouldn't that have made more sense storyline wise, or were you afraid that there would be backlash on mankind for future stuff you may have had planned? Well, a couple of things, uh, you wanted to keep rock and Mick separate and there, there was so it's twofold. I mean, Mick may have made too much sense. If that makes any sense, you know what I mean? Maybe people were expecting you could call it. You're saying, right. Um, so change, you know, change the script up a little bit and, and big, try something else. How big was that? You know, it doesn't feel like Vince is, you know, I know we're not going to talk about current stuff, so I'm not trying to backdoor into that. How much of Vince's decision-making in 99 compared to now? Cause I mean, these days it doesn't seem like we're getting a lot of, um, swerve for the sake of swerve bro but we're on the heels of vince russo and he was famous for nobody can call it and it feels like in this era just based on what you were the way you were describing it hey well nobody's going to call this that that was uh that was paramount in vince's thinking at the time that people want surprises people love and i'm not arguing that logic i just want to know from your perspective was that something that vince had at the forefront of his mind especially in situations like these, because you've told us before, and you may want to remind some of our listeners, cause you probably haven't said this in a few years, but if you do have to cancel someone, you have a cancellation, you've got 
a card subject to change type situation. What's the rule of thumb about the replacement? You always make it better than the original. You and, always replace with something better. And that's really hard here, you know, because it's yeah. What's better the hottest than attraction Austin? in the industry in ever in the history of the industry. And yeah, now you're faced with, we've got to replace him. So let's go back to the other piece of the question. How important was it when Vince was looking at what can we do that would come up with something no one can call? I'm sure that played into it, but again, to, to say that I knew what his mindset was then for this particular, I don't, I think it was more of a, of an overall approach of it's gotta be different than Austin and it has to be an acceptable replacement. Although again, what's acceptable to the biggest attraction in the business. Um, so it just, if it's not acceptable, then make it drastically different. I mean, we could have gone with a single match. I don't know if they would have accepted that. Maybe they would. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of what ifs after the fact on Monday morning. Um, but you got to make a decision that day and do something. We don't have the luxury of saying, okay, well you did, you should have done this, should have done that. Um, should have, could have, would have, it's what was done. And I think that it was done to be different. When did you come up with, um, the big show idea? Like where in the day did you know a big show is going to be the guy? Wow. Uh, I don't even remember. I don't even think we had it in the production meeting. I think it was an ongoing, an ongoing discussion throughout the day. When does he find out? Probably whenever the decision was made and that was probably midday. So I guess my question is, and I realize I'm, I'm getting really granular here, but you know, we've always heard, and maybe this is a different era. Maybe this wasn't the case here by this point that Vince wants to have a certain type relationship with his champion. Does Vince have a, is, is Vince the guy that tells him he's going to win the title or is there a big sit down or, you know, is there a big discussion or just, Hey, on, on the way to the ring, by the way, uh, you're going over with, the no, no, somebody told him, I mean, and they, they sat down and I'm sure it was probably Vince, but it, it was, yeah, he was told ahead of time, probably sat down with Vince and said, here's what we're going to do tonight. And here's why. Um, but did other you, than that, not much else. Did you have a conversation with, do you remember having a conversation with big show about what it meant for him to be the world champ? No. I, and again, I think that he, he looked at it as um, a huge accomplishment because it, it meant that, you know, we had faith in him, but it was, you, you got to understand, man, it, it's, there's not time for philosophical shit. Sure. A lot of times sure. when you're under the fucking gun and it's like, oh my God, there's a, fu- we're starting the fucking show in 35 minutes. We got to go. Right. Or, or two hours or three out, man, you gotta go. Um, there's not, you don't have the luxury of sitting back and go, Oh, well, what if you did this? What if you that? Because not only are you worrying about that match, you're worrying about everything else on the show. Um, and until you've been there and done it, it's kind of hard to explain to someone and go, Oh, well, it's easy. You should just done this. You've got to, sometimes you got to make a decision and go. Sometimes you do have to think about it and talk it over and 
play it all the way out. Um, sometimes you just don't have that luxury. This is this was a situation where we just didn't have that luxury. Where was Vince on Paul White at this time? I mentioned because he signs him over as the giant from WCW and he debuts in a big match in February of this year, St. Valentine's day massacre. There's a cage match between Mr. McMahon and stone cold, Steve Austin. The big show was introduced. That's in February. It feels like Vince is really, really hot on him for a while. And he's going to be, you know, one of the tippy top guys. Allegedly he comes in for something like a million dollar guarantee uh, or a million dollar downside, which is something that not a lot of people in that era were getting. I mean, that was tippy top guy money. But as you start to look at like, you know, even a couple of months later at WrestleMania, it's him and mankind. It's not main event stuff. And that's sort of middle of the card. I think it's like the sixth match. If you include the dark matches or the, the heat matches. But now he's the champ. And I'm asking about this because I know that at different times, you guys um, had different, the office, maybe Vince specifically, had different feelings about him. And even here in this show, Big Show's wrestling in a t shirt where Meltzer would remark, that tells you all you need to know about the discipline of Big Show's diet. And that's got to be something that Vince couldn't have been thrilled with. But yet here he finds himself in a spot where because of the circumstances, he's got to do something different. And he puts the belt on him. Talk to me a little bit about what Vince's relationship was like with big show prior to this evening. I think it was good. I think that, you know, when you, you're in that situation, there's also that part of, do you, throw him a bone and say, hopefully this is going to motivate him to take it to the next level because he does have the size. He does have the personality and everything else to go with it. Um, there's that too, but again, it's when that trigger is pulled and when those decisions are made that you've got to, uh, you know, you, you've got to go with it and make it happen. So, this was this was one of those situations for Big Show that, all right, what if we put the championship on him? What if we, we tell him that we've got confidence in him and go? Is that going to light a fire under his ass that now you've got a motivated Big Show? And what does that look like? Um, you, don't, you don't always have the answers. So it, it's... You got, you got to ask the questions and hopefully get the answer you're looking for there at some point. Meltzer would say, so when panic time comes, Vince McMahon went with the big guy, Paul white won the three way and ended the show was WWF champion. Something needed to be done to heat him up anyway, as his nearly $1 million per year downside guarantee wasn't justified by his position in the pecking order or how over he was. Even after doing an angle based on cancer, that being controversial coming, not that many weeks after the cancer death of great proportions within the industry, uh, big show is going to hold this title until the first raw of 2000, where he would lose it to triple H. Isn't it interesting that, I mean, this, this big show moment here feels like one of those 
you know, internet memes, life comes at you pretty fast. I mean, a week prior to this, this son of a bitch is riding a casket through a fucking graveyard. And now he's the world champ and did it well. And, and I think that his attitude going through all, all of that, uh, definitely helped. Well, we hope that you guys enjoyed, uh, this episode, but what I really want to know is what you thought of the pay-per-view Bruce, because survivor series was not well reviewed in 1999, according to the wrestling observer reader poll and got 10.4% thumbs in the middle, 10.4% thumbs up and 79.3% thumbs down. This has got to be one of the most disappointing survivor series shows ever. Does it not? Yeah, and it doesn't hold up well all these years later. It, it was not, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't great. That's for damn sure. After a night like this where you have high expectations, you've got, you know, two of the hottest stars in the history of the entire promotion, The Rock and Stone Cold, scheduled for your main event in a three-way. The undercard, so much talent here. You know, Edge and Christian in the same match with the Hardys and Chris Jericho in China, which on paper seems like, Hey, that could be interesting. What's Vince's takeaway? What's Vince's reaction? How is he after a show like this? You guys just happy to get the fuck out of there. I think so. And, and, you know, there's the feeling of you're wondering, you're wondering what, what your, the status is of your biggest draw and the biggest name in the business at that point. That was probably the overriding concern for everyone. Where, where, where does this leave Steve and what, what's next? Yeah. Rocket rocks there, man. And he's, he's coming up and he may be the guy. However, um, you also have, you'd love to have two guys and you don't want to lose the goose and is the human being. You don't want that human being not to be participating either. Well, we hope you're participating next week. We are going to call a little bit of an audible audible. We had said we were going to do survivor series, 1989 next. Instead, we're going to do survivor series, 1994. And the reason we're doing that is because we want to continue our, our, our theme, our series of doing watch alongs around Thanksgiving. We're going to drop that Thanksgiving episode, the night of Thanksgiving. It is your still your Thanksgiving night tradition. We'll hear on something to wrestle this time. It'll be with survivor series 89, but next week survivor series, 1994, what a fascinating time it is to take a look at the company during this era. Uh, so much good stuff here. Interesting stuff. The undertaker and Yokozuna in a casket match with Chuck Norris of all people as a special guest referee, bam, bam, Bigelow, Jimmy Del Rey, King Kong, Bundy, Tatanka, and Dr. Tom on one side against Adam bomb, Bart gun, Billy gun, Lex Luger and Mabel. That's real. Uh, Bob Backlund and Bret Hart for the world title in a submission match. The Royal family taking on clowns are us. This is a real thing. Plus we've got the bad guys, which is the one, two, three kid, British bulldog, fat two, razor Ramon and Sion. I pronounced that all wrong. Sione. There you go. Taking on the Teamsters, Diesel, Jeff Jarrett, Jim Neidhart, Owen Hart, and Shawn Michaels. Man, 
this is a pay-per-view that feels like a fucking fever dream. San Antonio, Texas, November 23rd, 1994, coming your way next week. When I mention this, what sticks out the most to you? The Bret Hart match, the casket match, or Clowns R Us? 100% the casket match and Chuck Norris. And wait. and bringing and bringing my my wife home to meet my parents for the first time to Texas. All very interesting stories. Well, tune in next week, Survivor Series 1994. Then mark your calendars. Join us Thanksgiving night. Uh, we're going to do a little watch along for Survivor Series 1989. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. Tell a friend, and uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're going to start having uh, some interesting stuff happen over there on YouTube pretty soon. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Pritchard show. You'll always have an opportunity to ask questions, interact with us there. Uh, and, but until next week, I guess we should just let everybody know you're at Bruce Pritchard. I'm Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next Friday and every Friday right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Shaka Khan. What is this bullshit about Tony Shivani? Try. He no never meet no Pasha Villa. Fuck that piece of shit. He can eat my shit, but he no ever have lunch with Pasha Villa. Fucker. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.